Let's pray together. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Father, you are our salvation and our God. And we can again praise you because of that. Lord, we thank you for the children. And we pray, Lord, that they would learn the lessons that for some of us took long, long time to learn. And we're still learning. Lord, about your your justice, that you are a God who is fully just, who knows right and wrong far better than we ever could. And yet, you are a God who is merciful, that when we call to you for forgiveness, you are willing to give it. You are willing to lift up our souls so that they won't always be cast down. So, Lord, we give you thanks. Thank you that you're this kind of God. And we do pray that today, in, as we study your word, as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we, give, as we have given to you, that you would make us more like Jesus, not because of the things that we do, but because of who you are and your promises. We uh, pray, Lord, this is well for the people in our community. Lord, many of them are struggling. And we pray, Lord, that you'd make them more like Jesus and bring them to yourself and fill them with hope and help us to be the be people who are used by you to, to bring that message of hope. Lord, we love you. We ask for ears to hear and hearts to understand your word now. Um, please help us to focus on you, to hold fast to you, to... Um, to listen with it, with attention and teachable hearts. We pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being faithful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we took a couple weeks and uh, had a couple special services, um, and we're and so now we're getting kind of jumping back in here on an eight-week series through the book of Psalms called Worship Is. And oftentimes in our lives, we, we are always worshipers. We are always worshiping somebody or something. And the question is, who is that somebody? What is that something? And if it's anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we're missing it. And the book of Psalms is written for our instruction, for our help, to help us to worship the right person the right in the right place so the first first week we covered psalm one where we found that worship is real life and real life is found through god's word him speaking life into us and as we meditate on his word it changes us the second week we discover we further went and discovered that worship is trust where we put our greatest trust that's where we worship and we're to put our trust in god because He's over everything. He knows everything, and he is able to help us. So with those two, two things in mind, that worship is real life and worship is trust, and that God is a God who can be trusted, we come to this today in uh, Psalm 51. So if you have a Bible, um, please grab one. There's one. There should be Bibles in the pews. You can grab one there. Um, and turn to Psalm chapter 51. And we're going to dive in today into what is arguably one of the one of the most well-known psalms. And we're going to do something a little uncomfortable. We're going to pull back the curtain on our lives. And I know that's not comfortable for you because it's certainly not comfortable for me. And I... I'm not alone in, in that. But I know it's not comfortable, but let me put let me put this in a, in a maybe a way that you that we might better understand. So if you were but if you if you were sitting in your seat right now and you had a really bad cut on your leg, like in like in an artery, and you're bleeding out, 
would it be more comfortable to just sit there and pretend that everything's okay while you're bleeding out or more comfortable to get to the ER and have somebody stitch that up and get it taken care of even though somebody stitching you up might be painful as well or would you be content to have somebody just or would you be content to have somebody come by and just put a little band-aid on that massive cut it's okay to say no I wouldn't <laughs> So my, one of my questions is, why do we think that's okay with our spiritual lives? So many of us in this room and in the, in the world around us, we're very, very content to sit with our spiritual lives bleeding out all over the place and not getting the help that we need. And yet God is right there great surgeon, the great physician right there saying I can heal you I can make you new for the kids here if you don't have sometimes there are wounds in your life that mom and dad can't kiss and put a bandaid on and it'll fix it as much as we'd like as much as us parents would love to be able to do that for you and for many of us, we've limped around for years this way. And the reason a kiss and a band-aid can't fix this kind of thing is because this is part of our nature. This spiritual wound is part of our nature, and we've chosen it. And we'd rather go, we'd rather limp along in life with it than go to get the necessary surgery to remove it and to get it healed. But you are here today. And my hope and my prayer today is that we will see that worship, part of worship, true worship of the living God, is that which involves something so painful, yet something so liberating and healing, that upon obeying God and calling out to him, as we will read here in a minute, I hope we will wonder why we waited so long to do it in the first place. And it is this. Worship is confession. So hopefully you've gotten to Psalm 51 this morning, and uh, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word. I'm only going to read the first six verses, and we'll have a seat, but we'll study the whole chapter. Psalm chapter 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And have a seat. So worship is confession. And this is, this is a, a very powerful and a, a well-known psalm of confession. And what we first need to look at here is the title of this psalm. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, these are actually these are actually the first two verses. It says, "To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba." Now, most song, psalms don't give us the backdrop of why they were written. This one is, um, thankfully, very very clear. And this also points to something that's great about this book, is if human beings were writing this book, and you were to think of the greatest leader that you could imagine, would you want to see his, his or her image dragged through the mud? 
No. But that's one of the great things is that God doesn't show any partiality. He shows that Israel's greatest, greatest king next to Christ. Israel's greatest king from ancient times, David. The guy who God said was a man after his own heart. We get a no-holds-barred picture of his absolute and just am- amazing failure as a man and as a king. So we we just we can't stay here in this psalm. We have to read um, the actual story, and it's recorded for us. Um, so if you want to, you can follow along with me. Uh, you can turn to Second Second Samuel chapter eleven, um, and you can read that. Uh, um, on your own as well. We won't read the whole thing, but it is an incredible story. There are several key things from this passage that just for in David's life, one builds on one builds on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, until this until this man's life is a big, big mess. And maybe that's your life, or maybe you think that's not your life, but by the end of it you might have accumulated quite a bit of baggage as well. But let's look here, just really quick. I'm just going to cover a few verses here, and then we'll, then we'll read some. So the, in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, It was the time when kings go out to battle, and David sent Joab his servants with him in all Israel. So, first thing, he doesn't, David doesn't go out with his army as the king should. He stays at Jerusalem. So, second thing, he just lays around his palace while his, while his army does the fighting for him. Three, it happened late one afternoon, verse 2, when he was walking around, lazing around, he was bored. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So, number three, he lusts after a woman who is not his wife, which according to Jesus, just the very thinking of it is adultery. Number four, it doesn't just stay a thought. Chapter four, David sent messengers and took her. And he commits the physical act of adultery. Then five, to cover it up after he finds out she's pregnant. This is, this is going downhill fast, guys, at this point. He invites the woman's husband back from the war which he's not fighting in, he invites him back and tells him to go to his house and enjoy, enjoy his house and enjoy life there. Well, this, this husband, Uriah the Hittite, in, in this moment is way more righteous than David because he says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, which is the commander of the army, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go, then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David's cover-up, number one, fails. So he tries another thing. Number six of David's list of failures here. David gets the husband drunk in order to attempt him to go home. It still fails. Now David is getting desperate because he... He's tried at least twice to cover up his sin. And it's not working because someone is righteous and someone is acting like they should. So when those attempts fail, number seven, he sends the husband back to the battlefield and in the husband's hand, he delivers a message to the commander of the army to put him in the front lines of the battle and then to withdraw from him when the fighting gets fierce so that the guy will die. The man is basically commanded to carry his own death sentence. And then David involves his entire army in sinning against Uriah, the woman's husband, and he dies. And David thinks, he's, thinks this third cover-up, got, he's finally gotten away with it. And so he goes to Uriah's house, takes Uriah's wife, because she's now a widow, and he, he marries her and makes her his wife. To try to make it look like the, 
the pregnancy and the child is his, or is not is actually his. So nine things piled on top of one another that this king does. This man after God's own heart. What a mess! And it seems like he might have gotten away with it. But then there's this amazing, almost understated line at the end of chapter 11... In verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You can cover up from other people. You can deceive an entire army. You can deceive an entire nation that you just had got a new wife and she's pregnant. But you can't hide from God. So now this part we really have to read because it's from this the whole psalm that we are studying today exists. Chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan, who is a prophet, to David. Prophets were the ones through whom God spoke. He came to him and said to him, gave him a story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Now pause here. David was at one time a shepherd. So the language of sheep here is very, very impactful and powerful for him. So he's, this is, well, just let's just call it what it is. Nathan is luring David into the trap he deserves. One little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he, he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Let me read in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Has anybody in this room ever been in that spot where you see the sin of somebody else and you cry, Foul! Look at that sinner! And meanwhile, behind your back is this huge pile of your own mess that you haven't dealt with. And this is the moment where God has him in the right spot at the right time and for our instruction and for our help and our salvation. Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. major consequences. Let's just put it here. If you get found out, when you get found out, not if, when you get found out because of your unconfessed, unrepented sin, there are consequences. There are always consequences. God did not make this world to be a consequence-free world. 
in, in, in his original design, he made it good so that when we did good, good things would come of it. Prosperity, fruitfulness, life. But when we sin, we broke all that. And when we broke all that, everything that we do turns to toil and all, the, all of our works are evil. Prophets, Isaiah says, says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So there are consequences for David. But look here in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What Linda said, fessing up. David confesses that he has sinned. And Nathan said to David, going on verse 13, something absolutely incredible, absolutely ridiculous. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Everything that he had done, he committed murder and adultery. Both of those offenses by themselves were worthy of the death penalty in ancient Israel's culture. And God shows mercy. There are still consequences. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, God calls it exactly what it is. The child who is born to you shall die. So, that's quite, quite the story. And so when we come to Psalm 51, where David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We are looking at the cry of a convicted sinner for help. And that brings us to our first point of Today's message is that we worship God acceptably by confessing that we need help. Is anybody uncomfortable with that idea of admitting that we need help? We're Americans. We like pulling ourselves by our own bootstraps. We are the country of individuals. We are the self-made men and women, or so we think. The idea of asking for help, especially help of this kind, where we, we think, we're not so bad. I mean, look at Hitler. But that's why this kind of worship is so important for the Christian and marks us so significantly from someone who doesn't think that they're that someone who doesn't think that they're so bad is that confession removes the veneer that we really can fix our own wound in our seat and that we need help. And so David confesses his need, but he doesn't just blurt it out there into the air as if that somehow would make him feel better. No, he confesses his need of help to the only one who can give help. Look at what he's not doing here. <laughs> and he, he's not asking for the self-improvement program. He's not asking God for the 12-step program to get him out of the mess that he's in. Though, some things like that can be useful maybe later on. But first things first. What is most important is not what David can do, but what he's requested that God would do. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So when we sin, and when we have sinned, church, do we ask? Do we request? Do we beg of God for these things that David asks of God? Or do we just wait 
until it all blows up in our face and we've been caught. Now something interesting here. For I know my transgressions, verse 3, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified by in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now we might be thinking, wait a second, no, 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 no. He wasn't just sinning against God. You don't know how many people got hurt in this mess? Bathsheba got hurt. The baby that they had together, God sentenced to death. The army probably lost people just because of following that order. Uriah, her husband, died. Lots of people got hurt. Even the, even the reputation of the nation is put at stake because of this. He abused his privilege as king and took another man's wife. He killed that woman's husband just to cover up his own sin, and as a consequence, a baby died. You bet he hurt people. And he did sin against them. Sin always hurts people. Always. Without exception. Even the ones that we think nobody's going to notice. But we need to understand that when it comes to sin, we're not the most important. And the people we've hurt, as grievous as it is, are not the most important. That kind of, sounds kind of harsh to say, but it is true. We're not the most important. The one whose image we bear is the most important. God created mankind in his own image. And because of that, we are valuable. We are given worth. We are given dignity. It's not from ourselves. It's from God. And whenever we hurt the image of God by hurting someone else, by sinning against them, we are ultimately sinning against God. And that's why David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And however much it hurts another human being, sin grieves the heart of God most. Because he's so much the opposite of everything that sin stands for. You'll notice also that David doesn't come to God and say, God, I'm a decent person and I don't know why I did what I did. Can you please help me out? I'm a man after your own heart, after all, and I just made some mistakes. There is a difference in our lives between a mistake and sinning. You know that, right? Like, the guy at McDonald's on last Friday probably didn't, couldn't have known that when he rolled down his window for the person who wanted to talk with him, that, that guy was going to hold him at gunpoint, make him drive out to a secluded area, and then rob him. For the guy who rolled down his window, that's a mistake. There's no sin in that. He was probably actually trying to help the guy. Or you look twice before merging on the interstate, and you thought nobody was coming, but somebody just drives right up on your tail as soon as you get out there, and you're mad, they're mad, you're both in danger. Nobody's sinning. Nobody sinned there. It was a mistake. We are finite creatures. But the, we do things like David did here. Yeah, maybe our list doesn't seem so bad because it wasn't written in the Bible. But we do things as those finite creatures that point out our fallenness. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not blaming his mom. He's pointing out the fact that this is inherent to his nature, so he is doubly responsible. Sinful people do sinful things. And he will choose evil every time apart from God. So David is spot on. And we should be spot on too when confessing our sins that God is fully justified in calling what David did sin. That's not a popular word in our day. 
God thinks it's wholly appropriate to call rebellion what it is. And God is fully blameless in executing judgment for the offenses committed. And the truth is, we should want nothing less than a God who does exactly that. Who wants a God who will not right wrongs? Who wants a God who just lets, lets things go and they're never dealt with? Many of you, I suspect every one of us in this room has been sinned against by somebody. We're not just sinners. We are sinners who have been sinned against. Somebody has hurt us. Our problem is that we usually want justice for the person who's done something wrong to us and not justice for ourselves. But God is not an unjust God. He doesn't let people get away with destroying relationships, with killing people, with using their power to cover up stuff. Praise God, he is not a God like this. But it's also scary to be in the presence of a God like this because we're not innocent either. You haven't done what David has done. You didn't get bored one day and go abuse your neighbor's wife, maybe. You didn't then have her husband killed in an accident to cover your tracks. But maybe there is something that you have said or done or something that you have thought that keeps coming back to haunt you. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And you just want to try to get it away, keep it away, keep it as far away so I don't have to think about it. You try to stuff it down or run away from it. And some of you have been running a long, long ways, perhaps even physical distance to run away from it. And God says we're all in this boat with David. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That comes from the book of Romans. And we can't get ourselves out. So the question is, are we then going to call out to the one who can and admit that we need help? David cries for mercy, for help. He worships by confessing his need. But you know, there's great news in that. Is that confession is not just stating that something's wrong. Confession is not just saying that something that we need help. Confession, I was reading, reading a book by Darren Patrick called Dude's Guide to Marriage. And in it he says, confession is confirming that which lines up with reality. So it's not only reality that we are broken sinners and who need help. There's great news on the other side of this. Look at this, verse 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Not only do we worship by confessing we need help, we worship by confessing that forgiveness and renewal are possible. They too are reality. You have not done the unforgivable. We have heard the prayer in the psalm, and we've seen some of the damage that has been done by David, and it might cause some of us to wonder if God would be willing to forgive someone like me or someone like you. The great news is that God is not just a God who receives confession of our sins. He is a God who is willing and able to offer love. Willing and able to extend mercy. Willing and able to save. Look at what David says. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's not hypothetical. The only reason David is praying this prayer is because he's banking on who God is and what God is capable of and what God is willing to do. He uses the name from Exodus 34 and verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. God is a God of steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, God is a God of abundant mercy. And he is able and he is willing. Now some of us might be thinking, because we're the ones that have been hurt as well. What kind of God is it who forgives sins? Because David committed all that stuff and Nathan told him, God says, I'm letting, I'm letting this go. I'm passing over this one. You're not going to die, David. And there should be part of us in, inside that says, how can he just let that go? How can he not strike the guy? Why does the, why does the, why does the baby have to die, not David? Where's the justice in that? Or we might personalize it. You don't, you don't know, God, what's been done with me, done to me. Well, he does know. How can I trust a God who is willing to just let the person who hurt me get away with what they did? Where is justice if David is forgiven, cleansed, and restored? Hmm? First thing we need to recognize, and it should have been clear in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and in here of what David is confessing, God never, ever minimizes sin. Ever. For some of your circumstances, I can't imagine the kind of pain that you have had done to you and what you've had to go through. And God is not ignorant of it either. He knows. That's why he was able to send David, send Nathan to David and call David out on it. You can't cover this up, David. I don't care if you're the most powerful man in Israel. He knew everything about David, even the thoughts of his heart. And he not only knows the thoughts of his heart, he cares. He is actually, believe this, he is actually more grieved about what has been done to you than you are. He did not make this, his world a world where people should sin, and especially where people should get away with it. He is a God who knows and a God who cares. Now, some people stop there and basically say that the all-knowing, caring God is incompetent. That people do get away with things because God is helpless about it. Not true. Not true at all. We should never follow a God that's incompetent. That lets people get away with things. He is able to deal with sin and to bring about full, full, full justice. And he brings it about in three ways. First, the guilty person can face justice in this life through, say, governing authorities, law enforcement, courts. In some ways, he can face it by a life ridden with guilt and unable to escape. No sin is left undealt with. So that's the first way. The second way, in verse 4 of this psalm, when it says judgment, ultimately what he's speaking of is eternal judgment. A good God and a just God sends sinners to hell. He does. He should. If we think about it and stop to think about it, nobody likes talking about hell, except for Jesus, apparently. He talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Nobody wants a good and just God who lets people get away with it. And the way, one of the ways God doesn't let people get away with it is he sins rightly, condemned sinners to hell. 
those who reject him and refuse to find their forgiveness in him. That brings us to the third way that God is just. And the third way that God is just flips this world upside down or right side up. In God's economy, the truly innocent can take away the guilt of the guilty. The truly innocent can receive the justice of the condemned. And the truly innocent can pay for the debt of the debtor and transform that which is and transform to worth that which is worthy of nothing but scorn. The question we ask is, well, who in their right mind would be willing to do that? Who has no record, never done or thought a single sinful thing, nothing ever sinful came out of their mouths. Who in the world would be dumb enough to do that? Well, in God's economy, it's not dumb, and it's not of this world. It's from him who came into this world, and his name is Jesus. Look here at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Is anyone familiar with hyssop? If you know a little bit of your Bible trivia... So hyssop is a brush-like plant that is found in the Middle East and in North Africa, and I think, it's, I think it still grows there. Do you know what the first record of this plant is in Scripture? It's where God is commanding enslaved Israelites, a group of people who have been sinned against for 430 years. He tells them to slaughter baby lambs, baby sheep. And to brush with hyssop their doorposts with their blood. Why? Because he, God himself, will, is, was going to come to Egypt and bring judgment on the, Egypt, on, on the nation that had enslaved Israel for 430 years. And he made the command that anyone who put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, God would pass over and spare their lives. Exodus 12, verse 22. And that included Moses, a guy who 40 years previously had killed a guy and then tried to cover up the death. So God not only provided lambs for the Israelites many thousands of years ago, that was all to point to him providing his own son, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And it is by his blood being brushed on us, poured out for our sakes, as he was killed on a Roman cross, that we are saved, no matter what we have done, how big our sin pile is. And no matter what has been done to us. And if we ask for it, hide your face from my sins, Lord, and blot out all my iniquities. He will do it. He will do it. He will purge us with hyssop. He will wash us. He will hide his face from our sins. He will blot out all of our iniquities. And he will not just leave us a blank slate. He will make something new. He will make a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians says, he is a new creation. God will seal the person who believes in him and who asks for forgiveness with his Holy Spirit. David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And you know what? David's been a believer for a long time. And the truth of the matter is, is someone who believes God and who trusts in him and who has his Holy Spirit may at times go through the anxiety that I've sinned so bad that how could God keep me and accept me? 
I preached here a, a while ago now, it seems, that once you're his child, you're always his child. Period. You don't become unchild. And people who don't believe, who reject God, they aren't really terribly worried about God taking his Holy Spirit away. And David wants his God to send and keep his Holy Spirit upon him so that he can continue to confess and continue to worship God in an acceptable way. Because David is desperate for God to restore to him the joy of God's salvation. So anyone here want more joy in their lives? Or is this life happy enough for you? Seek it in God. who restores joy to the one who confesses both that they have sinned and that God is able to forgive and renew. David started this psalm, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Confess to God that you need help and confess that he is willing and able to give it. I was given a card many, many years ago now with a cover on it that has always struck me. It's on the screen, and maybe you've seen it. And it struck me then, and it still strikes me now, because the man that Jesus is holding so often reminds me of me. Just utterly tired by trying to save myself by my own efforts. Trying to earn. And my own efforts... And finding out that my own efforts are actually the nails being driven into Christ's wrists and into his feet. And when I am convicted by my sin, of my sin by God's grace, I recognize that I can't even hold myself up. So it is Jesus who has to hold me up. And guess what? Jesus is right there. He is right there able to forgive and willing to renew. Uphold me, Lord, verse 12, with a willing spirit. When we confess that something is broken and that we need help and that he is able to help, able to forgive and renew, God does what he has promised. He brings the dead to life. He brings the wandering back home. He makes slaves into sons and daughters. And brings many to glory. And that brings us to the final portion of this psalm. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, that my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is news not to be kept quiet. The question is, church, do we ask for these things? That David asks for. That our tongues would sing aloud of his righteousness. That our mouths would... Declare his praise. That we have been delivered not just from our general sinful state, but from our specific, our specific failures. Do we delight and desire in light of his delight in receiving the worship of the broken and contrite? Contrite meaning our sorrow for having offended God and trying to keep him away. To teach fellow sinners of his ways even those whom we've written off as unsavable. It starts with a broken heart and contrite heart. We ought to be broken and contrite over the very thought that we should offend the only being who has never, ever done us wrong, who has always worked since before the foundation of the world to display his goodness and glory and love in himself through his loving his creatures, us, his image bearers. When we are these people, the joy of salvation is restored to us. 
and verses 18 and 19 actually make sense for us. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Burnt offerings in ancient Israel were the most common of the sacrifices given. They were daily, twice daily at least. And they became so routine, so rote, that people stopped seeing them for what they were. But when we confess to him our need and believe through Jesus he is able to forgive and to renew, we can confess his goodness. And we worship by confessing his goodness. And this is not just a one and done confession, church, brothers and sisters. It's not just a one and done. Be great, but it would be hypocritical of us. This is an ongoing way of life for a believer. See, David sinned this way after he had been a believer for quite some time. And we should never think of ourselves not needing cleansing before we are called home or when Jesus returns. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, present, he is faithful, present, to, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must believe that confessing, while it may be initially painful, is acceptable worship to God that he will heal us, cleanse us, and restore us so that we can rejoice, we can praise him, and we can tell others of how good he is. So David's plea, God's plea, my plea in this is that we would not sit in our seats with a big wound on our legs and just let ourselves bleed out. No, let another who is infinitely worthy bleed out for you because he's already done it will you ask him for it so I know we're running quick, really low on time here but I want us to take just a minute before we sing our final song to take that time with God just a minute you'll be surprised how long it feels to confess our sins for, toward God. To ask him for help. To confess he's able and willing to help us. You need him, I need him. Confess his goodness and his the joy of his salvation that he has so freely given us in Jesus.